And we have only just begun to get to know you, Father, but what a joy it is that we can. We've known the edges of your ways. But we pray that the Spirit of God would make the Word of God real and applicable to our hearts this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Again, welcome. This morning we'll be in the book of Ephesians, as you know. Ephesians chapter 2. So if you would turn there, it would be wonderful. If you've read through the whole Bible, you're aware that the word and the idea of remembering is a big deal to God. Remembering is a big deal to God. It's important to remember because spiritual truths are so quickly forgotten. Moses, after he had been with the children of Israel for 40 years, wandering through the wilderness, he needed to repeat the entire law to the people after that 40-year journey through the wilderness. Many of the first generation that had been alive when they came out of Egypt, they were dead. And so now a new generation was in place. And these were the men and women and children that were going to be going into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. So Moses had to give them instructions and tell them again what had already been said to them previously 40 years earlier. And the book of Deuteronomy is the record of his having done that. It's the record of Moses reiterating to the people the law. And the book, the title Deuteronomy means second law. It's the second repetition of the law. Uh, that had been given earlier. But the key word in the entire book of Deuteronomy is remember. Because just in one short generation, that generation had largely forgotten their own roots spiritually. And so they needed to be brought back into remembrance. So do you and so do I. Remembering, what is it? It's the retrieval of memory, one author writes. Explicit memory is the conscious, intentional recollection of previous experiences and information. My longtime assistant pastor in Monterey, Steve Brazelton, uh, sort of drove me nuts in one sense because he was always telling stories about the ways God had, had worked in his life in the past. He drove me nuts until I figured out what was going on. What he was doing was bringing back up his history. He was remembering what God had done. And it was always right on, on his tongue. It was always at the forefront of his mind, the things that God had done in his life. So if he was in a counseling session, a story, some recollection of his own history with the Lord, how the Lord had delivered him, how the Lord had worked in his life, how the Lord had provided an answer in a real tough situation. It was always right there at the forefront of his thinking. It was always on his tongue. He was ready to share that. And so many people were helped. And once I figured out what he was doing, it didn't drive me nuts anymore because I saw that, man, he's just living biblically. He's just learning. He's learned how to remember and then he shares what he's remembered with others, and it provides great help and great encouragement. It's an act that's intentional. It's a recalling to the mind by an act of effort or memory. It's to think of something all over again. 
It's to keep something in mind that is there, but maybe is dormant somewhere in the back of the mind. It's to intentionally bring it back up one more time. And it requires effort. It requires thought. It requires quiet. It requires contemplation. This is one of the reasons why people have a hard time remembering anything these days in terms of their own histories because we live such a busy life and there's so much noise. Sometimes I'll be driving down the road and the radio's on and I didn't even know the radio was on. And then I'll, I'll see that the radio's on. What's the radio doing on for? I mean, I'm not listening to it. It's not important to me. What they're saying is just this inane drivel. I'm not interested in hearing it. So I turn it back off again. Because there's just noise, 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 noise. And to find a quiet place, or to find a quiet moment, or to discipline my mind to where I can actually go back and remember the things God has done, and remember who He is, and remember His Word, it's a challenge. It's a challenge for me, and I know it's a challenge for you as well. But it's important to do it. It's important to do it for a lot of different reasons, to maintain that discipline. Remember. God remembers his promises, aren't you glad? He doesn't forget them. He doesn't lose track of them. He remembers his promises. He remembers his covenant. But he also forgets things that he ought to forget. He forgets our sins. He removes our sins from us, and then he casts them behind his back, and he doesn't remember them anymore. That doesn't mean that God is not capable of remembering them or that they're completely out of his conscious memory or unconscious memory, that would be impossible because God knows everything that can be known or ever could be known or ever will be known. But what it does mean is that he's made a choice to put a certain truth or a certain activity or a certain action out of his mind. He doesn't think about it anymore. And that's what he does with our sins. He forgets our sins. Now, we need to remember what God has done for us. Moses told the people of Israel, remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of of bondage, because by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Remember this day. Etch it into the memory of your mind. Make sure you don't ever forget it. And, of course, in the New Covenant, we have the greatest memory jogger of all, and that's the communion where we're to remember that Jesus gave his body for us on the cross, and we're to remember that he shed his blood for us to pay for our sins. And he said, do these things in memory or in remembrance of me. Well, not only do we need to remember things, we need to also forget certain things that it's too easy for us to remember. We need to forget our own sins, And we need to forget the past in the sense of the things that have wounded us or hurt us. We need to find a place for them, forgive them in some cases, be forgiven of them in other cases, and we need to put them in the past. Because we can't do a single thing about them any longer. Got to learn to live in the present in view of the future. But the children of Israel, they came out of Egypt, and things were a little rough for them in the wilderness at times. And so what did they say? What did they remember? Well, at one point they said, we remember the fish that we freely ate in Egypt. We remember the cucumbers. We remember the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. It was great eats back there in Egypt. 
Man, I'd like to go to that restaurant again. And here they were eating manna in the wilderness. And they were bored with it. They were bored with God and they were bored with this provision. So they wanted Egypt. They wanted the world. They wanted to go back and get some of that again. They were remembering the wrong things. And we have a hard time with that sometimes. We need to remember the right things. Now in our passage, we're told to remember our histories and some of the things that God does. We're to remember that Christ brings us near. We're to remember that Christ is our peace. We're to remember that Christ gives us access to God and to his blessings. And we're to remember that Christ gives us a new home and a family. Let's read our passage beginning in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been made near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of division between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father." So verse 11, again, says we are to remember once who were Gentiles in the flesh. We're to remember certain things. Gentiles in the flesh. In other words, we're to remember our histories as Gentiles before salvation. A Gentile, of course, is a non-Jew. Gentile and nations are synonymous. So the nations, the non-Jewish nations, the people, the non-Jewish people, they're all in this one huge category called Gentiles. And most of us here are Gentiles from that perspective. But we're to remember our histories as Gentiles before salvation, what we were before we came to know Christ. Why? Because we need to be humble. We need to be humble about where we came from, our roots, our beginnings, and we need to cultivate that humility and live in it. Sometimes you read stories about some famous athlete or some famous actor who had a real humble upbringing and real humble surroundings, lived in maybe not poverty, but in a real humble environment and found some way to go to Hollywood and got discovered and made it in first movie and some producer liked the work that they did in the movie and so they go on and they get a part in a better movie and pretty soon their face is everywhere and they get the best parts that are offered to them. Now the one that's grounded and the one that is realistic about his or her life is the one that doesn't change. Even though all these things have happened in their lives. Even though that now they're famous and it's hard for them to even go very many places without being recognized. 
And they've got more money than they could even spend in a few lifetimes. And they've got all this notoriety and all this fame and all of this wealth. But the ones that are grounded are essentially able to maintain the same approach to life. They're basically the same people that they were. And every once in a while you read an article about one of the good guys or good gals in Hollywood. Or a good guy or good gal in the athletic world who actually has done that. And they call in their friends and they'll interview their friends and their friends will say, yeah, he's just the same guy he was when I was growing up with him when he, in the neighborhood or on, uh, in high school. He hasn't changed. How is that? How does that happen? They're grounded. They know who they are. They remember their humble beginnings. They remember what they came out of. They, they, they have these things in their minds all the time. And so it doesn't allow them to get puffed up and a big head and start thinking that they're better than anybody else. And that's the idea here. We as Gentiles are to remember where we came from and what we didn't have apart from Jesus Christ. Lest we should be puffed up and lest we should be proud. It shouldn't be hard for us to be humble because we're nothing. (laughs) But somehow it is. There's the pride of the flesh and there's the humanness that we all still deal with. And so it can be a struggle. So we're to remember these things to cultivate and maintain humility. But also, we need to remember these things in our histories as Gentiles because that way we'll respect Israel. We'll respect God's chosen people, the Jews. And we'll remember that we actually were grafted in to their blessing. Whenever I meet a Jewish person and I have a chance to have a conversation, I'll usually thank them for letting us borrow their Messiah. Because that's exactly what's happened. Jesus is first to the Jew and then also to the Greek. And we realize that and we need to maintain humility toward Israel and towards God's people and realize that They are still very, very important to God, and he hasn't forgotten his covenant with them. And I think it's also important for us to remember our roots and our histories because it contrasts with what we have now. And when we are aware of what we were, and that's a contrast to what we have now, it makes us more grateful for it. I've done a lot of traveling over the years, and I remember one of my trips to Africa. We didn't know where we were staying one particular night. Uh, It was in some remote village, and we had a vague address of the place, and we were late getting there, and it was dark, and there was no power in that village when we arrived there, so there were no lights anywhere, so it was really hard to even find where we were supposed to go. But eventually we found what we thought was the place, and it probably was the place. It was kind of an octagonal-shaped house. And uh, so we, we found that the door was open, and we, want, we went in, and, and uh, you know, we couldn't see well, so we just had to find places to stay. And so one of the brothers found a bedroom, and somebody else found it. So we all found places to stay. And then, of course, we had to get ready, and we had flashlights and whatever, so we had to get ready for bed. So, uh, you know, you go through your routine, you brush your teeth and whatever. Well, I went into the bathroom, and I'm using my flashlight. And 
uh, you know, brushing my teeth and doing all my nighttime grooming. I hate that stuff. I wish you could just go to bed. But uh, it's just too much work. Anyway, uh, nighttime grooming, and I hear this, and I look up, and there's these flies, it looked like, trying to ram into the screen. Thankfully, there was a screen in coming into the window. And then I realized, they're not flies, they're bees. So I got to kill these bees, you know. So I got, you know, the mosquito repellent and whatever else we had and started squirting them, you know, through the screen. And, th- and there were more of them as, as I started doing that. And, and even more noise and more loudness. And it was hairy. I mean, it was really hairy. And, and you know, it wasn't until the next morning when we left what, that we saw what we'd been in. That place was bug infested, rat infested. There were animal feces on the covers of the beds that we were staying in. There, and, and then I walked outside and I realized that there was a nest of African killer bees right underneath the overhang of the house in which we'd been staying. And I was aggravating a bunch of African killer bees, which could have killed us. I tell you, when I got home from that trip, my shower was so glorious. And my towel and my bed and the comforts of my home, I mean, I was so thankful. I became very conversa- uh, conservationalist, by the way, because we didn't have running water there. And so I, you know, turn the shower on, get wet, turn it off, soap up, turn it on, dry, you know. No, I was using no water. My environmental footprint was almost inex- non-existent uh, after I got back for a while. Now I've loosened up. I take longer showers now, but... You realize where you came from, and you have greater appreciation for where you are. Much greater appreciation for where you are. And that's sort of the idea here. Well, the first thing, we're to remember that Christ brings us near, verses 11 through 13. We're to remember that we who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands have a certain history. What's this whole uncircumcision and circumcision deal? Well, the uncircumcision, that was the title that Jews gave to the Gentiles. Because circumcision was the sign and the seal of the Jewish covenant that God had made with the Jewish nation. And it was very important to Israel, still is very important to Israel, and the Jews were required to be circumcised. If a Jewish male was not circumcised, then according to the law, that male was cut out of the covenant that God had made with the nation. He was cut off and cut out. And so what they did is they developed this idea of uncircumcision, which of course Gentiles had no requirement of being circumcised. They made this a derisive term. So they would call the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the uncircumcised. And it became a disdainful kind of a, t- of a term, largely because it usually represented what was in the hearts of Gentiles and the way that they lived. And so you hear the phrase, you uncircumcised Philistine. David used that phrase in reference to Goliath, if you remember. 
And who are these uncircumcised that would blaspheme God? Those are the kinds of phrases that would be used. And that's where every Gentile was at one time and is if they're not in Christ. By the time of the New Testament, when it rolled around, it was common for Gentiles to be viewed by the Jews as simply allowed to exist as future fuel for the fires of hell. That was the definition of the Gentile in many Jewish minds because it had become a derisive term. And even when the gospel went to the Gentiles, you remember how difficult it was for the Jewish believers to accept the fact that Gentiles were receiving and believing in their Messiah without being circumcised. And when Peter went to the house of Cornelius, he was actually accused after the Lord blessed those Gentiles with salvation. He was accused. And the accusation went like this. You went into uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Now that doesn't seem weird to us. Well, of course he went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. That was his job, to preach the gospel to them. But to the Jews in that day, even Jewish believers in Christ, it was all new to them. And it was very difficult for them to even grasp it. So we're to remember where we were again in the light of what God has done for us. And this list here in verses 12 and 13, pretty incredible. We were at one time without Christ. That would be the same thing as saying literally we're without Messiah. At one time, we Gentiles were without Messiah. We had no one to save us, no one to call out to, no one to assure us, no one to give us strength, no one to give us victory. As Guzik puts it, we were without spiritual blessings, we were without light, without peace, without rest, without safety, without hope, without a prophet, priest, or king, because we were without Christ. You've probably discovered that sometimes a way to value something is to imagine what your life would be like without it. It's true. Start thinking about what would my life be like without this person in my life or without this church or without this blessing that God has given me. And it makes us appreciate it that much more. Imagine being without Christ. I can't even imagine. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel outside of the benefits of the community of Israel. Strangers from the covenants of promise. We were like guests, not really belonging. you know, Gentiles just not really free to, to, to relax and, and, and feel like they belonged there. It's kind of like I feel sometimes when I do a wedding and I don't know anybody. That's a, kind of a weird experience. Some guys do really well in that. Some pastors love that. Man, I don't know anybody here. This is great. And they're very gregarious kinds of people. I'm not necessarily one of those gregarious types of persons, as you probably have already figured out. <laughs> And so for me, if I don't know anybody, and I've done the wedding, and I just barely know the couple, and I thank God whenever I remember their names during the ceremony, I wrote them down correctly. And then there's the reception, and I feel like a third leg, just standing there. And I'm very much looking forward to the time when I've done my duty enough to go home. (laughs) 
And it's awkward. I don't feel at home. I don't feel like I really belong there. That's the way the Gentiles, apart from Christ, are. Strangers from the covenants of promise. Having no hope, he says, no confident expectation of any future good in this life or the next, and without God in the world. And so to summarize this section, verses 11 through 13, uncircumcision, aliens, strangers, without hope, without God in the world, before coming to Christ. Hendrickson writes, before coming to Jesus, Gentiles were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. It's what I call a futile, empty existence. had lunch or dinner with a a friend of mine that I hadn't seen since 1994. He was in the Church of Monterey. He's now serving in the military in a Central American country. He was in the area, and so he called, and and we got together. He was telling me about how that some of the officers down there don't do well because their foundation is that they're secular humanists. And they're not believers. Their secular humanism works okay and enables them to be effective military officers in a culture that has a strong sense of right and wrong. But in some of these South American or Central American countries, the culture has so disintegrated that the lines of right and wrong are so blurred that basically anything's acceptable. So these guys that are secular, they don't believe in God, they're humanists, they believe in man, they don't trust God at all, they don't have truth as a foundation, they have nothing to, to steer their moral compass. They have nothing to guide themselves. So they go down there and they're exposed to this world of anything goes, and you can have anything here, you can get anything, you can do anything here, and, and so on. And lots of careers have ended that way because they end up doing something they shouldn't have done and they get caught and the result is sometimes they even get court-martialed tragic but the Christian soldiers the Christian officers they go down and they've got a compass they've got something to guide and steer their ship they got something they can fall back on no 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 wait a minute I I can't do that and I won't do that because the truth of God's word tells me that that's bad stuff, and if I mess with it, it'll destroy my life, and God won't be pleased. That's the idea here, that we were hopeless and godless, a futile, empty existence. And think about people that are around everywhere we go, that have no certain way by which they can live their life. And that's the way the Gentiles are apart from Christ. But in verse 13, we learn... Those who are in Christ Jesus, who once were far off, have been made near by the blood of Christ. Praise God for that. Made near. Made near to what? Made near to God. Made near to God's blessings. Made near to God's truth. And how did that happen? Look at the text, verse 13. By the blood of Christ. Brought near by the blood of Christ. It didn't happen through keeping the law. It didn't happen through being good. It didn't happen through performing good works. It didn't happen by joining a group. Gentiles 
were brought near by coming to Jesus Christ and being cleansed and washed by his blood. That blood of Jesus did it all. It made all the difference. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Good news. Brought near. Brought near. We're also to remember, verses 14 through 17, that Christ is our peace. This is an interesting passage. Verse 14 tells us that Christ himself is our peace. And we're not talking here about peace in the sense of a state of calm that is within our hearts. The state of everything's okay and that sense that, okay, in my heart and in my soul, things are settled. That's a wonderful thing as well. That's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is peace. But this is more talking about the reconciling aspect of peace. Whereas there had been war, now there's peace. There had been enmity, now there's peace. There had been separation, now there's peace. There had been a danger because of being on the wrong side of God and his commandments. But now there's peace. And this is what's happened in the gospel. As peace has been made, Jesus Christ himself is our peace. He has made both one and broken down the middle wall of division between us. Now what is that referring to? Well, who are the both referred to here in verse 14? He has made both one. Well, who has he been referring to? He's been talking about the uncircumcision and the circumcision. He's been talking about the Gentiles and the Jews. He's made them both one. He's made Jew and Gentile one in the body of Christ. And we'll get more of that later as we go through Ephesians. He's made Jew and Gentile one. How did he do it? He broke down the middle wall of partition which divided us. And he abolished in his flesh the enmity or the difference or the opposition. And we'll talk about that in a second. But this idea of the middle wall of partition. True reconciliation begins with God reconciling individuals to himself. And then he causes those reconciled individuals to himself to be reconciled to each other. First, there's the vertical reconciliation to God and then the horizontal reconciliation to others. That's the way it works. God brings us to himself through Christ and then enables us to reconnect with each other. And this happens with individuals. This happens with groups of people. And even can happen with groups of people who are at odds, such as Jews and Gentiles were at odds with each other in New Testament times. We're talking about peace. What's the problem? Why is there war, everyone? Men and women all over the world are essentially in a state of not being reconciled to God and thus not being reconciled to each other. That's the problem. And it's true, war isn't the answer. Jesus is the answer. He's going to be the one who reconciles it all eventually because he will reconcile individuals to himself and deal with all those who refuse that reconciliation. But in the 
New Testament times, the temple that was in Jerusalem, we'll call it Herod's temple because Herod was the one that refurbished it and upgraded it significantly. But in Herod's temple, we have here the court of the Gentiles. And if you see the slide here that's on the uh, screen, you see the temple court, which is represented by that rectangular wall. And you see the holy place, and you see the most holy place, and you see the court of the uh, priests, you see the court of the sons of Israel, the court of the women, and then outside of that, the court of the Gentiles. Now that wall that surrounded the temple enclosure was a dividing wall. If a Gentile went into even the court of the women, the Gentile could be executed for that for that crime. Because there was such a division between the two people groups. The next slide gives another graphic of it. You can see the temple itself. And then you can see the court of the Gentiles outside of the temple area. And that's where the Gentiles were allowed to go. And this outer court. Even Gentiles who wanted to see something of the glorious temple and they wanted to offer gifts and sacrifice to God, they could go in that court of the Gentiles, but they couldn't go any further under the penalty of death. Now what Jesus did is he came and he gave himself for us. And if you remember when he was crucified, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Can we see that slide again? Uh, in the Holy of Holies, which would have been on the left side of that temple structure, in the Holy of Holies, there was a large screen or a large curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, which is where the high priest would go in once a year, from the holy place, where the priest would go in every day and minister. In that one place, the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go one day a year. And so what that showed, what that illustrated, was that complete access to God was not possible for us, apart from priestly mediation, and that only one day a year. But when Jesus died on the cross, and that veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom... That showed that God had made the way for everyone to come directly to God, directly into the Holy of Holies, because Jesus' death paid for the separation and enabled us to go directly in. So how do the Jews get into the Holy of Holies? They come in through Christ. How do the Gentiles get into the Holy of Holies and into salvation? They come in through Christ. They both come to the same place. The wall of partition broken down. The veil that divided and kept us out, torn in two. We're both in the same place, at the foot of the cross, subject to the mercies of God, receiving the mercies and the grace of God. And because of that, we can be reconciled to each other. A couple who's married who are Christians... If they're having problems, this is their answer. The man needs to realize that the dividing factor that kept him from God has been removed. 
It needs to realize that by the grace of God, I'm accepted by God himself, loved by Jesus himself, access to God himself. What an amazing thing. I've received mercy. And then he looks at his wife, and he realizes the same thing about her. She, too, has received mercy and grace. And she, too, has gone beyond the dividing wall and has gone beyond the veil and into the Holy of Holies. She's accepted. She's now at home in the presence of God. She has received salvation. Changes everything when I begin to see my spouse and when I do see my spouse as a saved individual who is under the grace of God just as I am. With the same privileges and the same blessings. It enables us to cut each other a lot more slack. Like somebody wrote, when you go into marriage, before you get married, keep your eyes wide open. And then after you get married, keep them half closed. But in reality, it's not just that. It's realizing that God loves that spouse of ours just as much as he loves us. And he's been just as merciful to him or her as he has been to us. That's the key to reconciliation. Powerful passage. And so it tells us that he abolished in his flesh the enmity. What was it that was keeping us separated? Well, it was this law of commandments contained in ordinances. The Jews had the law, and they had the ordinances, and the commandments, and the traditions. The Gentiles didn't. But now Christ has eliminated all of it. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's the meaning of the ordinances. He's the completion of the sacrificial system. He's the replacement for the traditions. He's everything. We have him. We have it all. So in one very real sense, please hear me here, in one very real sense, believers in Christ don't need the law anymore. Because the law has been written on our hearts. It's not just contained on some tablet somewhere made out of stone. But it's been written on our hearts. The only place for the law now is if we decide to go outside of the will of God for our lives. The Lord will use the law to show us, where did you go? What are you doing out there? What's up with you? Do you know that this fire is going to burn you? The law will remind us of our need to come back. We come running right back to Jesus. That's the place for the law today. But Jesus eliminated this. He took away this enmity. In order that, verse 16, he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. Praise God. Thereby putting to death the enmity. One new man, the end of verse 15, created out of it all. Jew and Gentile in one body of Christ. He didn't put down one and elevate the other, Chrysostom says. He brought both to the foot of the cross and made an entirely different man. As if one should melt down one statue of silver and another statue of lead and the two together could come out gold. That's what Jesus did. 
melted us both down and he made us into one new man, so making peace. And in verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who are near. To bring peace with God, the war is over. One of the greatest blessings in the Christian life to know that the war that I had with God is over and his war that he had with me is over. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 The war is over. God's seeing me. He's seeing you through his son. He sees you through the lens of the cross. He's got cross and blood-colored glasses on. And that's how he sees us now. Through Jesus. So... That means that he's not frustrated with us, not angry with us. He's for us, not against us. He's with us, not separate from us. He's on our side. This means, this means everything. This is practicality. This is real life. Email from a friend down in Southern California. They adopted a child. She's in her 40s. So now she's got a child. They've been married for all these years and haven't had anybody in their home. They wanted a child very badly, but now they've got this little one, this little girl, high demand, different than anything they'd experienced before. But they wanted, they put their name out there. They wanted to adopt another. And they got a phone call, and within hours, they had their second child. So the email was, my friends are telling me I need to pursue balance in my life, but I look at this house, it's chaos. And the struggles and the pressures, I mean, how do I find balance? You know, they're telling me I need to find balance in my life and do this and do that. I wrote her back and I said, listen, the pressure that they're giving you to find balance is one more load that you're having to bear. You don't need the load of pressure by somebody telling you you need balance. Listen, remember this. God is for you. He loves you. He's on your side. He's not against you. And, he, and he's very much with you. So as much as you can, just relax and enjoy him and realize that you're in a phase and a season of life that's just really hard to adjust to. And I'm praying for you. That's the bottom line. God's for us in the real stuff of life. In the real places of life, places where people get frustrated and they tilt. You know, the system goes bonkers, you know, and people flip out. The Lord's with us in those places because he's on our side. He's committed to us. That doesn't mean he's going to make everything smooth all the time. He doesn't. But it does mean that in the midst of whatever bumps I'm experiencing, he's for me, he's with me, he loves me. I'll never Never lose that. That'll never go away because I'm in Christ Jesus. I don't try to worry about figuring it out. Why is God doing, and why is God allowing, I don't know, those are unnecessary questions to me. The thing that's most important is, Lord, where are you in this? How can you be real to me, and how can I be aware of your love for me right now in the middle of this? 
and give me wisdom. That's what's important. Wonderful. Peace is ours. And then verse 18, through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Through Christ. Look at all that Christ did. He, he now gives us access. Jew and Gentile in Christ have the same access to God. Have the same walk with God. Have the same blessings from God. The same opportunities in the Lord. The Lord is an equal opportunity father. He's not a respecter of persons. There's no division and distinction anymore because of the gospel message. And he doesn't care if a person is poor or if a person's rich, if a person's black or brown or yellow or white. He doesn't care if a person's American or South American or Asian. These things are irrelevant to him. He's not a respecter of persons. He gives everyone a chance to walk with him, to experience his blessing, to know Christ himself, to be saved, and to allow this access to take its course. We have access to God. We have access by one spirit to the Father. So it's wonderful news, and these are the things that we're to remember. Remember where we came from. Remember that he's our peace. Remember that the commandments have been removed from us in the cross. Remember that we're reconciled. Remember that we have peace with God. Remember that we have access. Remember. Remember, remember, remember. That's what this is about. Remember. This is where our responsibility comes in. Because these are the truths that aren't new to us, for the most part but they're true for us. These are the truths that we need to sit down and just be disciplined about recalling them again and again and again. Recalling them will enable us to live in them. Amen? Let's pray. Thanks, Lord, for all that you are and all that you do and all that you've done and all that you will do. Quite amazing how we have been brought back into relationship with you, we who had no hope whatsoever apart from Christ. And whether we are a Jew who believes in Jesus Messiah or whether we are a Gentile who believes in Jesus Messiah, we thank you that your love for us is complete in him. And you have done a wonderful work of giving us a future and a hope. Help us to remember, Lord, that we might be humble in the things that you've allowed us to have in this life and in the life to come. What a blessing. As we just are in this attitude of prayer, I want to talk to anyone that may be here this morning that isn't yet reconciled to God and you've not yet come to Christ. God has something for you. He has eternal life for you. He has forgiveness of sins for you. He has a hope for you. He has a future for you. He has 
the ability to say, okay, all of my life up to this point is in the past. It's part of what I used to be. Now I am a new person because I am in Christ. He's giving you that opportunity to put the past in the past and let the future be glorious and full of promise. That's what the gospel does. God loves you. Jesus died for you. He rose from the dead for you, and he wants to come into your life. That's why he came, is so that he might come into your life. So if you're here this morning and you want peace with God in your life, and you want to be forgiven of your sins, and you want this war with God that you've been fighting, you want this war to end, and that's just where you're at right now, I want to pray for you. I'd like you just to raise your hand right where you're seated so I can pray for you. You've never received Jesus as, uh, as, as your Lord, and you've never experienced this forgiveness. You've not been reconciled. You've been struggling, fighting against God, resisting the Christian message, resisting Christians, avoiding the whole thing. You'd rather just have it go away. But now you want peace. You want forgiveness. You want the war to end. Just raise your hand right now and I'll pray for you. Anyone this morning? Anybody listening to this online? Watching it online? Let me pray for you. Lord, we thank you for the word and for the, the promise of the gospel again. And we pray that anyone that may be listening to this, whether on CD or whether by the Internet right now or even in this room, that hasn't been reconciled to God, hasn't been forgiven by you. We pray, Lord, that you would open up their eyes and open up their minds to see their great need for Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd help them to feel what hopelessness feels like apart from Jesus that they have no hope apart from him. Pray that you'd help them to realize that there's only one truth. There's only one way to find that truth, and that's in Christ. So we ask you to open up eyes, open up hearts, open up minds. Bring people to an awareness of their need for Jesus. And we thank you for that. In his name we pray. Amen.